Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm Brian Zellmer, director of KU Presents. And as always, I'm joined with my friends. Kevin, how's it going in uh, the Quad Cities? Just living the public art dream. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And we also have Danielle joining us. Hey, it's Danielle Van Hook from McLean, Virginia at the Alden. And I will say we are having so many youth programs. Um, in a, such a short period of time right now. <laughs> it is the busy season. Katie, how are you? Hey, everyone. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. And it feels like spring is maybe finally descending on Michigan, but I'm not going to hold my breath. So that's what's happening up here. All right. And last but certainly not least, we have Josh. Hey, Josh Benson rocking it from Marion, Illinois at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. So this week I spoke with Anthony Wilkinson, uh, who is now the executive and artistic director at the Avenel Center in New Jersey, Avenel, New Jersey. And uh, before we get into that conversation, I just had a quick question for all of you. Have you ever had a successful show, successful meaning you had a good turnout, like a, a, a number of patrons there, but it wasn't the audience you were expecting when you booked the show? So for example, we just uh, kicked off our family series and uh, it's kind of a return. We used to have something called the children's series years ago that was very successful. And we always had fa- families, just like it said, you know, multi-generational groups of people come and enjoy the the show. Um, but this year when we launched our family series, I was really surprised by how many people came without children and in speaking with them and they enjoyed it after the show. Um, they talked about how they used to bring their kids to the family series years ago, and they always enjoyed them themselves. And so even though they don't have children living with them now, they still came and they had a great time. And And it just kind of opened my mind a little bit about how we're presenting that and, and advertising that for the future seasons. Brian, I had a similar experience. It was actually our one of our very first shows back after the pandemic. We were doing outdoor programming, and I finally was able to bring the Okie Dokie Brothers uh, to Midland. They were the first show we had canceled, them on our outdoor stage. And I had honestly a very similar experience where we had many older individuals and, uh, like groups of younger friends come to that concert just because their style of music, that kind of Americana folk music was really attractive to them. And I think the space and just wanting to get out, but it was like, wow, like maybe we should be again, broadening our audience and focusing more on genre um, and experience versus just like the content of the show or who the intended audience is. Um, And it was a great time. We had such a fun time. You all, if you, if you've listened to us before, you know, they're one of my favorite acts to book and work with. Um, and it was really honestly a very successful evening. That's awesome. Side note, I have them booked for the fall. Yes. Exciting. We did, uh, we had Kenny G come in and I was expecting honestly a a pretty white audience for Kenny G just in general, but I was super wrong. It was an incredibly diverse audience and I was surprised and delighted um, that I was serving communities that I didn't expect to be serving with that show. Yeah. We brought in a comedian years ago and she's a much older and really advertises herself as a storyteller. And when we brought her in, we expected an older crowd and the crowd was surprisingly young. Like we're talking twenties, thirties, um, for a majority of it to the point where even after the show, like she commented on it, she's like, I think this is the youngest audience I've ever seen at any of my shows. Yeah. A couple of years ago, um, I had booked the Joshua show, um, which is a two man show fronted by puppeteer Joshua Holden. He calls himself the hipster, Mr. Rogers. Um, and that, I think that paints a pretty good picture of what his show is. Um, he has these absolutely adorable puppets um, that he uses to tell his story about just like being joyful and and loving and happy and in the hipster vein he wears a cardigan he does (laughs) and yeah he has a curled mustache too like someone i know Um, (laughs) and so we were selling to families especially younger children it's definitely a show for a younger audience and then we sold like a whole row of tickets to a group that we like weren't familiar with. And so we did a little bit of digging and we found out that there was um, an adult puppeteer uh, meetup group in Northern Virginia that happened to have their conference that same weekend. And they had all been so interested in seeing him in the past. They canceled their event and they all came to ours because they just revered him as a puppeteer. 
And I never, I never thought about selling that show that way. And they had such an awesome time. And like, it was fun. Well, thanks for sharing, everybody. The reason why I ask is because Anthony, many people know Anthony Wilkinson from his my big gay Italian series of shows that he's produced and starred in. And he had a similar experience where they were presenting the show for one particular audience and ended up discovering after some time that a different group of audience was coming. And I thought that was interesting. So why don't you listen now to the interview that I had with Anthony and we'll talk on the other side. Hi, my name is Anthony Wilkinson, and I'm the Executive and Artistic Director for the Avenel Performing Arts Center here in Avenel, New Jersey, which is part of Woodbridge Township, New Jersey. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for sitting down with me today. Before we get into a lot of your background, I'm curious if you could just explain what an artistic and executive director does. Well, as I'm sure you know, many artistic directors and executive directors all over the country have different roles. But as for my role here at the Avenel Performing Arts Center, the executive director would be really the person who who is overseeing the budget and overseeing more of the business side of the building. And the artistic director would be the person doing the programming and really overseeing the artistic side, the shows and their development and making sure everything looks good and sounds good on stage. I do both. So uh, I think the, I'm the first person here in this building. So I think initially they realized that this is the type of organization that can be run by one person versus two. We'll get into that a little bit more uh, down the road. But first, I just want to learn a little more about you mm -hmm. and your background. Do you mind just kind of giving us the highlights of of how you got into the arts to begin with and leading up to where you are today? Sure. So I started my career, uh, I went to NYU and I started majoring in the arts. And then I got a job as an intern at One Life to Live, where I spent 15 years. Uh, I started as an intern. I worked my way up to director. Uh, and then once I realized that the soaps had really plateaued and really started to hit the decline, I knew it was time for a change. So during all that time, I had always had a passion for theater and I did a lot with theater. I started putting shows up in New York. I had two off-Broadway shows at that time, but it was more of a part-time situation. I just did them once or twice a week. Then I said, you know, there's something here full-time. So I had uh, an agent tell me that one of my shows, my big gay Italian wedding, it was more timely now because when I had did it in 2003, gay marriage was definitely taboo, but in 2009, it was a very hot topic. So, um, I left One Life to Live and started doing eight shows a week in New York at the St. Luke's Theater. And uh, it was a very risky adventure. And the first year was definitely not lucrative. But then after a year, we started to find our way. And next thing you know, it did become very profitable for me. And I was able to make a living from it. I want to stop you right there because there's so much to unpack in just that little bit that you've told us. Mm -hmm. If we could just back up even to you were going to NYU yeah. to study writing, what was the impetus to to pursue that even well funny you should say that when i so when i was in high school i uh I really was more academic in science and math like my, my scholarship was for science and math so i did get a full scholarship to nyu but it was because of my academics not because of writing so my first i started as a sophomore because i got all my college credits and then i started taking arts classes and i just fell in love with them so i changed my major actually from um psychology to be a i was gonna be a psychiatrist to uh, creative writing and uh, English with specialization in creative writing. Was it NYU helped you find the internship? With yes, One Life absolutely. I started taking classes in the arts like in my second semester. And I just knew that was more my passion. I, I hated, I, I was, I was falling out of love with anything with math and science. So in that year, the one of my professors recommended, they saw a writing internship for One Life to Live. And I applied and then I got it. So how did it go from that to, mm -hmm. you said... So, yeah. So I wound up with one internship, turned into another internship, turned into another internship. Oh my gosh. And then they basically, when I graduated, they made me full-time. Were these paid internships? No. How did you survive? No, I, I didn't. I, I was, I was, I was pretty much... Well, I didn't have to pay for school. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I worked, my family owned a bowling alley. So I used to work whatever time I had. I used to manage at nights and work the bowling alley and stuff. So okay. I did what I could there and I managed the bowling alley. So how did you learn to direct? How did you go from writing to, then you, you said you were an associate director eventually? Mm -hmm. So I started in the writer's office and then from there, an executive producer came in and she made me her assistant. And that was actually the full-time job because as a writer, I was an intern. Okay. And then I was like a part-time, it was like a, more like a, it was a paid internship at this point. So it was, so they, they hired me as, um, I forgot what the title was, but it was basically like pennies. 
Mm-hmm. And then the new executive producer, I wound up filling in as her assistant and she made me her assistant. And that became my first real full-time with benefits. Okay. So that's when I became more of a full-time position. I was with her for a year. And then she said that she saw me more in the director's guild, more working in the control room, more with the actors and stuff like that. She didn't feel soaps was the right creative outlet for me. Interesting. She felt I was more of a comedian. And you said at one point too, a few moments ago that you were also doing theater on the weekends or at that point I was doing standup comedy. Oh, okay. So I was doing standup. How did that start? Oh, that started. seems like you have like a multi-pronged life. I did. I did. (laughs) I was in college. I was coming out and, um, I just, I don't know. I always had this love for stand-up comedy. And then I just tried it once in Fire Island. Somebody booked me and I fell in love with it. You got booked without ever doing it before? Without, yeah, no, without ever oh doing it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, How did I, it go? It went great. It went great. Wow. They kept booking me. Wow. So I was doing that. And then I did it in Long Island, Staten Island, New York. And it while was you're working while on soap opera. While I was in, at that point I was in college and then I oh, continued okay. it. So when that I was came before soap opera. the soap opera. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then when I started at the soap opera, I was still doing stand up, and then I did my first, wrote my first show. Oh my gosh. And my then I wrote swimming. my first you're, show. I know. But I was, I was young and I had the energy yes. for all this, but let's just say I didn't <laughs> sleep a lot. <laughs> so you are obviously incredible at your job, even if your supervisor told you she identified that soap operas probably weren't the outlet for you, but you, you ended up winning three daytime Emmys, correct? Oh, well, that came, that was more from the directing standpoint. Okay. Wow. So that was when, so now at this point I, I become, uh, her assistant, her assistant, then she makes me a PA, then I become, which is in the director's guild. That's your first entry to the director's guild, which was at that time paid very well. So I over doubled my salary because it was through the wow. union. So that was a great opportunity at a young age. Then I became an associate director. From there, I became an editor as well as an associate director. And my first Emmy was for editing and then was a bit being part of the directing team twice. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, so those were where I won my editing and directing Emmys. And then, yeah, and then I left. You had my big gay Italian wedding. Was that overlapping with this time? Yes. Oh, yeah. My big gay Italian wedding came out in 2003. Before before we get to it coming out. When did you write it? What was the 2002, 2002, 2003? Was there something that just said, I need to write this? Or was it something that was always in the back of your mind? Yeah, I guess I would say the impetus for me writing my big Italian wedding was at a young age, I always wanted to get married. When I realized I was gay, at that time, gay marriage was not discussed. So coming from a big Italian family, I would go to all these weddings and I realized I was never going to have one. So... I, and that's when I thought, what a fun play this would be to write a story about a comedy about a young Italian-American male who wants to have the same thing that his family had. And that's what kind of stirred the, the, the beginning of the, you know, the, the nucleus of my big gay Italian wedding. And then I fell in love with someone, my first true boyfriend, true love. And so that plus that equaled the recipe for my big gay Italian wedding. And that's when I wrote it. So I think that's why the probably the show, even though I would say it's my least favorite of everything I've written, it's the most successful. But I think its success is based on that innocence that we have at such an early age, which I no longer have. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> So not only did you write it, you acted in it. You also produced it yourself or did you get help uh, with that? In the beginning? No. In the beginning, I did. I did not produce it by myself. I have multiple people who produced wow. it with me. I, I'm sorry, yes. and if I, I apologize to the listeners if my questions are. This is not a very linear line yeah, to no, follow. It's, it's not. hard to follow. It's not. It's so, because I'm just trying to put my head around how did you? You're doing stand up. Mm-hmm. You're do, you're now in a writing. It. No, I know, but yeah. I'm saying you have all these different spokes, yeah. if you mm-hmm. will. I'm trying to figure out in the timeline how did you meet whoever it was that helped you produce it then. And how did that come about? So those producers were people I worked with at One Life to Live. Oh, okay. okay. So one was a producer. One was another associate director. She was higher than me. Um, and they were the ones that did they. Really... So you told them you had this play that yes. you wrote. So there was a show before my big gay Italian wedding. It was called Gay. It was a gay spinoff of Greece which I called Greasy. And then we had to change the title because of copyright infringements and stuff like that. Um, Because it stole too much from Greece and it was more of a parody, they came after me and said that I was going to, in order to do this, I was going to have to do it for charity. So, which was fine because it was one of my first real 
theatrical works and it was a musical. What lessons did you learn from, from doing that? Well, that was the big one that, that everything has to be original. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, you can't be too inspired by other pieces cause then they'll say, no, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot of lessons from that actually. But, uh, but it did make me realize the biggest lesson at that time was that how much I loved that and other people, the producers included thought that was my talent. So they felt like there was, even though we had to raise all the money for charity, they still felt it was very successful and a really good show. So I think they backed me. So when I did Wedding, they read the script and they thought it was ahead of its time as well, but they saw the potential and they said, let's put this up. So they helped me financially. Fantastic. And then um, we all worked together. So I would say I was a co-producer in the beginning. Okay. Then in 04, um, we had to close it because that was when I got my offer. Uh, well, that was when I start, had to start training for my next position at One Life to Live. Mm-hmm. And that's when it involved editing. So it involved going back to school, more training. It was a, a much bigger job and involved a lot. And I was very young at the time. So it involved, it was more intense. So I knew in order for me to focus on that, you know, that new position, I was going to not be able to do two things at once again. So at that point in 04, I said, okay, now I have to really focus on work. Fine. So I did that. And then in 06, once I got my feet and I was back in a groove where I didn't, I could, you know, more on a routine, that's when I opened my next show. Boys just want to have fun. And that I opened in 06. And that ran for about a year and a half. In 07, I closed Boys Just Want to Have Fun because I got my next offer to move up the ladder. Wow. So TV kept getting in the way of your theater. It did. (laughs) It did. And same thing. I had to go back and learn more and learn more more from a directorial point now because this is now another up. And then in 09 was when I had made the decision to know that the soaps were done for me. Because at that point, the soaps had declined so much. They had, I mean, the ratings were going drastically down. Shows were starting to get canceled. We went from 12 soaps at that point to maybe now eight, um, knowing full well that we had maybe two years left. We knew this. So that was when I knew I had to do something else. And that was when I made the decision with other people to bring back Big Gay Italian Wedding. Because in 09, it was a very hot topic during the Obama election. And they knew that it was soon to become. And at that point, it had become legal in a couple of states. So we knew this was going to be big. And the people who repped me in 03 and 04, who worked with me on that project, said, you were early. Now is the time. And that, and they were right. Because when we brought it to St. Luke's, we went from doing two shows a week in the village to eight shows a week right in the Broadway box. And it was it was packed. It was crazy. And it was a big, it was really a, at the time. I mean, I'll, I have so many fond memories of that because we were the first people to really have gay in the title in Times Square, like in that area, it was unheard of to be next to Aladdin and have two men kissing on a billboard. And, and we got a lot done. I wanted to ask you for your first production of it um, mm-hmm. when it was early. What was the marketing like? Who, who did your marketing and how, how did uh, his name was Hugh Heisel? HHC marketing. Uh, and he did my marketing. How, oh, I was going to ask how, how was it received then? Because as you were mentioning, it was a different world. Hugh really targeted the gay community at that time. Okay. So we did get at that time, a very gay audience. When we moved in 09 and because of everything going on, I hired the same marketing company and there was more people involved because it was a bigger production and it was eight shows a week. It was equity. It was union, bigger budgets. So we had an advertising company. We had a marketing company. We had a general manager. Uh, Ken Davenport was his name. Uh, And uh, all these people, we used to have weekly meetings and roundtable discussions. And one of the things we realized six months in was that the audience was no longer the gay community. The audience was actually women. And we really started targeting females, um, uh, Italian American, Jewish, ethnic groups that were more family oriented, that understood that culture, but really women was it. And next thing you know, we realized that the majority of our audiences were women. And we started getting these bachelorette parties and big groups and female, older female theater goers, even older ages that would come and congregate in these big groups, which is ultimately who your theater audience is. So, uh, that's when we realized, and that's when the show really took off. Once, once we got a handle on who the audience was, that's when it took off. Now that show you've, you've licensed to, is it Samuel French? Yeah. So then in 11, 
um, Samuel French at the time, they, now they're Concord Theatrical, but at the time it was Samuel French. They came and they found, they somebody they sent somebody to see the show and then they approached me about my first licensing deal and, and the show got licensed. We had a lunch one time and I think you told me somebody another in another country made a movie that came later oh okay. that came so so sam french came first and then it started getting licensed in multiple countries and cities and mm -hmm. blah, blah, and it started doing really well and then around 15 i want to say 15 i think it was 2015 an actress by the name of sabrina ferrelli who i didn't know at the time never heard of her she sits in the audience and she, my stage manager comes to me during intermission and he says this woman would like to meet you after uh, the show and I'm like who is she so he's like I don't know so I was like I, it's like she barely speaks English I'm like I don't know so then he comes back to me and he's like looks her up he's like oh she's huge she's like the Meryl Streep of Italy and I'm like really wow. and then I call my aunt who's very Italian and off the boat and and he's like she goes you're kidding she's in the audience I go yeah she goes she's huge you have to go have a drink with her so I went and had a drink with her and her husband and th uh two weeks later she flew me to Rome Wow. That's how I knew she was serious. Mm -hmm. And um, she had this beautiful penthouse overlooking the Vatican. And I remember when I got to the hotel that she put me up at, uh, the person who it was, I remember somebody was like, no, I'm, I take it back. I was on the plane. Somebody said, oh, what do you, you, you want to go to Italy? And I said, oh, I have a meeting with Sabrina Ferrelli. And they, they thought <laughs> I was nuts. They're like, yeah, that's cute. And I'm like, oh, no, yeah, yeah. I'm going to her house. They're like, yeah, sure you are. <laughs> but I really was. So when I got to her house, uh, she was very serious. And she said to me, she says, I am the Lady Gaga of Italy and Europe. And she was the gay queen. And she was the one, the liberal one. And she was the one who, who wanted to be the first to bring gay marriage to Europe. And um, she really liked the show for that reason. So she wanted to make a statement. Next thing you know, she wound up the three meetings later, I had a contract and they bought the rights for Italy. So they bought the, the so the, so the rights still exist. If, if, if the movie wanted to be made in the United States in English, but she bought the foreign rights for mm -hmm. Italy. Um, and the, the movie then, then there was some other issues, but then ultimately the, that production company did make the film. And it did very well. And now it's plays in every country. You can actually watch on Amazon and it has subtitles in every language. So it was very cool to go to Italy and see the opening. That, that must yeah. have been just top crazy. One of the top probably moments. <laughs> I, it beat the Emmys. I'll tell you that. I have to say bringing my whole family to Italy to see that was incredible. I bet. That was off the wall. Yeah. So, and you've had now multiple ones. You've had funeral, midlife crisis, Christmas, mm -hmm. and, and they're still all playing now, correct? Yes, correct, correct. That, that's incredible. Now I'm doing more with the casino industry. So now that we're up to time, in 2000, so now I did, after that, I did midlife crisis and funeral, like you said, all off Broadway. But in 2017, the mayor of Woodbridge came, I, I do a lot of speaks on anti-bullying. That's my side. I thing do want then. to get into that too. Okay. But. Oh, so we'll get back to that. But he found me at one of his talks because I was at his school and um, we had a, a long talk and, and he said, you know, I'm opening this building and I want someone to oversee the, the, the whole thing, executive artistic director. And I want it to be you. And the timing of that was just almost perfect because I realized that I had gotten to a point where... I didn't want to gamble anymore with my career. And as you know, when, you when you're living off ticket sales, it, it could go either way. I mean, I had some good weeks. I had some bad weeks. But my salary was pretty much based on how well the shows were doing. So to have a position where I could make a salary and get benefits and and another pension, because I already had one from One Life to Live, I thought that was a great opportunity and I didn't want to pass it up. So I thought that was the time. So I closed and then I came here to Avenel and I've been here since. In that time, uh, I've now, because I let other people do the shows and license them, the only thing I do with the shows is the casino industry. So the casinos broke out a little bit before that, but then they really started to take on another life. So now I have a residency 
as a matter of fact, just recently at Ocean Casino, which is in Atlantic City, and I have an exclusive agreement with them to do all my shows. Did you arrange that, or did you have an agent help you? No, actually, I, that they did it. I did it. I mean, doing what, what I do for a living, I, I didn't. I didn't feel I needed an agent. So I mean, I, I certainly knew how to negotiate my own contract. Uh, so. Yeah, but they approached me and I accepted it. I thought it would be a without great getting idea. into your personal details. There might be someone listening who might want to get into a position where they need to learn how to negotiate. Are mm -hmm. there certain things, uh, certain tactics, or certain certain approaches that maybe you can suggest to them? I mean, what I do, I guess everybody's different, but I, I do my homework. Um, I try to reach out to other presenters and see how they did it and performed in other venues. Um, you try to team up with people so that you can get better rates and understand their rates. So you know, you're in the ballpark and that's usually how I start. So at least I know the, the base of where the, the, they are. Uh, and then I try to negotiate more backend deals so that there's more of an incentive for them to sell. Can you explain what a backend deal is? So. Uh, giving them a guarantee that guarantees them up front. And then if they sell after a certain point, they make more money. So for example, uh, maybe I would sell a comedian with a thousand dollar guarantee, but then after expenses and after break even, they get an additional 50, 50 of the door, something like that. So therefore if the show brings in $5,000, we take out, you know, whatever expenses we had, which for a stand-up comedian is minimal. And then they wind up making more money and we all do well. So that's one of the incentives. It just creates a lower risk mm -hmm. for us. Uh, cause my job, as you know, is to just not get killed. So I try, it's challenging now, especially since COVID to be taking risks. And I'm mm -hmm. seeing that a lot more, even at the last couple of conferences that people are taking less risks. So some of the bigger agents with some of the bigger shows realize they have to come up with deals like that, where it's more, a joint effort because otherwise it's too hard to take the risk that we used to take because we don't know what climate we're in anymore. Definitely. Um, you mentioned how you, you give speeches about anti-bullying and things. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk about how that came about and, and a little bit about what you do? So, um, how it came about was, well, in my past, I was, um, I buried this, but in 2000, uh, in the early nineties, like 89, 90, uh, I was bullied as a kid attacked and, uh, thrown down the steps, thrown, you know, beaten up all the time and, uh, had a very tough childhood. I wound up staying out of school because I was afraid to go to school. And then, um, I jumped in front of a car and, um, almost died, but I survived. Uh, but then I had to be uh, medicated and put through all kinds of psychiatric evaluations. And my mother had to go through all kinds of trauma with me. I was homeschooled for a year and a half, uh, because, I, because I was, because of a suicide attempt. So, um, so, but I got through it and then sophomore, junior, senior year, I, uh, triumphed and did really well. And then, um, I forgot about it. I just kind of locked it in a box and threw away the key. Uh, but in 2010 or nine, nine or 10, uh, one of the teachers from that school who really helped me, who she really helped me, she came back to me and there was this whole, it gets better campaign happening. And she really felt I should tell my story because my story could help some of the kids she was dealing with today. Not even so much the, the kids who are being attacked, but the bullies themselves, so that they can understand the impact they're having on another child. Trying to t tear at the heartstrings. So I was at first against it because I just didn't want to go into that part of my life that I buried. But then I realized that it could have some benefit, so I did it. And the, we put up a video which went viral. And um, next thing you know, I started getting calls from other schools that wanted me to do this. And it's one of those things I just never say no to. I just never say no. That's my give back. So everybody has a charity that's that has become mine. So I never take a dime for it. I'm pretty much, if any school, and I've done everything from little kids from like third to fifth grade to middle schools to high schools, any, and then I talk to adults. Anybody who wants my stories or my, my lecture series, I'm happy to give it. Um, and I get nothing in return besides it. Cause I do find it rewarding. I do. If, 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 like I said, if I could help somebody, if people are, um, if it does change the way kids do react today, it, it does 
make me feel better. So does also all the talking about it, has that helped you heal a bit too, a little bit I more? I think so. I think so. I mean, I don't think I really, I get, you know, yeah, I feel like I'd like to say that I was past it a long time ago, but you never really get past it. You know, I mean, I would say even today, I'm 45 years old. I, I, I avoid confrontation at all costs. You know, I mean, if I have to work, if I'm at work and I have to reprimand an employee or deal with or fire somebody, stuff like that, that's different. But in terms of like actual confrontation, like really like childhood confrontation, like if I'm in a, I don't know, public setting and somebody calls me names or something stupid, I just ignore it. You know, I, I, I don't believe in any kind of uh, attacking or whatever. I mean, if, if, if I'm confronted, I probably, again, and I would have to defend myself, I would hope I can. But for the most part, I, would, I try to avoid that kind of nonsense. We only have a few minutes left, but I want to make sure we get back a little bit more into your executive and artistic director role sure. here at the Avenel. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious, because you do the booking of mm -hmm. the shows, correct? Mm -hmm. Is that something you have help with on, uh, with a staff, or do you do that Oh, funny you said that. So uh, before COVID, I had a big staff, um, but because of the pandemic and because we cut down so much programming, I was forced to lay off quite a bit of people. So where we were, um, we're half of what we were. I've had to eliminate my technical director, my production manager, who was more helpful. So I had a production manager who was definitely the most she would have dealt with, I would have probably found the shows and then she would have taken it to the next level. She dealt with a lot of the contracts. So we, there was two sets of eyes on a lot. So I worked a lot with her. That position's been eliminated. Now it's just, um, I have a marketing director and I have an assistant. So Brad is my assistant, Carrie is my marketing director, but Carrie also, we all do social media. Carrie now does advertising as well. She also does my educational programming. So she wears a lot of hats. Brad, who at once was just really my assistant, now has taken on a more managerial role as well. And he works with the treasurer in terms of all the money. He does the payroll. He's, he will do my uh, appointments and stuff like that and oversee a lot of that stuff as well. So we, we all do a lot, wear a lot more hats. Mm -hmm. And is that something you think will eventually, you'll grow back into being able to expand your staff again? Or is this here to stay? I think that's a great question and a great argument for so many people because Sadly, my opinion is that the world we are creating now is a detriment to this because we have now established the fact that we can do this without these people. So now to- But at what cost? Because aren't you sacrificing a lot more of your personal time? And oh, of course. But now they look at it now, if I go back and say, well, I need this position again, it's going to be like, well, how do you, you've just shown us you could do without it. And I think that was a big problem with the pandemic because we spent, I think, too much time finding ways to work without people that now it's hard to get some of them back. I would really like to get at least two positions back. But right now, every time I've brought it up, until we get to a place where we're at a normal that justifies that, I have a long way to go. So I don't see my, this building in particular, I don't see hiring more staff till for at least two or three years, at least. With the current position that you're in mm -hmm. without having all the staff to help you, what do you find most helpful in, find, in discovering acts and figuring out, you know, finding what you're going to bring to your venue? Mm. Is it conferences? Is it showcases? Conferences. Is, is it talking to I agents? would say conferences. Yeah. Conferences are the most helpful for me because- What um, specifically happens at a conference that helps you the most? Well, the, the interaction with other executive artistic directors, that interaction, interacting with agents, interacting, seeing the showcases, yes, that definitely helps. It gives me a taste of what the show's about and what it is. But interacting with uh, and having that one-on-one -on -one with, with people that are in our positions, that really helps, especially in this climate because so many people are doing different things. So like some of the questions that you're asking me, I would be curious to hear the answers from other people. Like, am I the only one going through this? What did you go through? How do you handle this situation? How do you handle that situation? So, um, and I think some of the conferences have done a better job than others in, in creating that. Um, I don't want to call out certain positives and negatives, <laughs> but the, but the, but I'll just call out the positive. I would say the last one we went to that I saw you at OAPN, I think they did a great job. 
Mm, I uh, agree. So yes, I would say that really, because otherwise here in Woodbridge, especially with what's going on, you, I'm, I'm lost. I mean, I don't know what's playing. And because so much has dramatically changed because of the pandemic, it's, you don't know what agents with who, with, with which acts anymore. I mean, so much has changed and so many shows have changed because they've had to redevelop them because a lot of the bigger shows have become smaller to make them a more, more affordable and be less risky. So in terms of COVID, so there's, there's a lot of different factors. So in order to really, really embrace it, to go to these, I find them very helpful. Yes. Anthony, I have a, a time machine actually. Mm-hmm. And I want to bring you back to right before you switched your major to creative writing. Mm. Is there any advice or encouragement if you only had a minute or two to speak <laughs> to that younger version of yourself? Um, so I, I, I've just switched. Before no, no, no. You have, just, just before you switch. So I'm like 16 years old. What advice would I give myself? Were you that, were you that young? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did wait, you graduate I, early? I graduated early. I graduated college at 19. Wow. So wait, let me think. Closer to 17, 18, something like that. All right, so I'm young. So what would I give? What advice would I give myself? Or, I, or encouragement. Well, let me start by saying this. I have no regrets because every mistake I've made, I feel has only improved my career moving forward. So I wouldn't give myself advice that would take away from making the mistakes that I made because I feel they made me stronger. I think the advice I would give myself is to be careful who you trust. Be careful who you trust, to be less naive. Again, I think some of those mistakes were avoidable, but I think by, if, I, if I'm guilty of anything from a younger age, I think especially back then, I, if I could go back and do a couple of things over, I wish I would have been a little less naive in terms of certain people who I've who I trusted and probably shouldn't have maybe. Is there anything that, any advice that you would want to impart on somebody who's looking to enter the industry, either as a writer, an actor, a producer, or a Well, or a director? I think the advice I would give someone today is different than what I would have given them before the pandemic. But uh, because it's, 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 it's gotten a lot more challenging. So my advice today would be, be careful. <laughs> but honestly, I guess... Um, you have to love what you do. You have to love what you do. And I tell that to a lot of people. Like if you want people, some people just say, oh, I want to act. I want to write. I want to direct. I want to blah, blah, blah. You have to really know it. You have to really live it. And you have to really want it. Um, so going back to like my past at One Life to Live, I really wanted it. That's why I worked for nothing. That's why I put in 16 hours a day. You have to do the work to really see if you love it. And then because if, if you love what you do, you don't mind working for very little money or no money because you, you're loving that experience and you're enjoying it. If you don't love what you do, you're never going to do it well. I always ask this as the last question. What do you like most about working in the industry today? For me personally, what I like most about working in the industry today is the level I'm at versus where I was 20 years ago because it allows me to now mentor other people and the knowledge I now have feels more comfortable versus the scare I had years ago. So now it's just in my blood. And I think because I've been doing this for so many years, you, you, it just feels more natural. I mean, that being said, I still learn every day. I still make mistakes and I still learn from them. But it, it's nice to be in a position now of authority and... I feel like now that I've overcome a lot of those obstacles, I can really enjoy some of the benefits that come with the work you put in at earlier ages. Anthony, thank you. I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. Same here, Brian. Thank you. Well, that was a delight. Can we talk about going from an intern to a director on a major daytime TV show? <laughs> I mean, when you started this interview and he introduced himself as an ED and an AD, that's not where I expected this story to start. Um, and is a totally different perspective than anyone else that we've had on the podcast so far. To me, learning about the TV world is always fascinating. Well, beyond the TV world, it's the that his play was turned into an Italian film. Also that. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> By the Lady Gaga of Italy. I thought that was awesome. Do, 
Do we need to explain what a soap opera is maybe for people under 30? Because <laughs> they don't uh, exist anymore. Oh, that's a good point. I would it? like for you to explain that. I don't Brian. know that I could. I just remember when, I, like Anthony, I think said there used to be like 12 running a day. And, and I remember when I was like really young before school age, like that would be my nap time when my mom's soap would come on and I would lay on the couch twirling her hair while she sat on the floor in front of the couch. And that was like our ritual every day while she watched her soaps. But that's all I could really say about it. Yeah. When I would go to work with my mom at the flower store, Every day at one o'clock, they would all, it would be like, they had the TV kind of running in the background, but they, they'd still be doing their work, but it would be like silent and everybody would be watching this. Show. <laughs> uh, can I make a confession to uh, my friends, the pod squad and uh, all of our listeners? Uh, when I was in college, I definitely watched the young and the restless every single day at lunch <laughs> with my mom. <laughs> So I was working at the golf course in the summer and my sh I didn't have to go until like two o'clock. So yeah, we definitely would like make lunch and watch The Young and the Restless. Genoa City, Wisconsin. It takes place in Genoa City, made up city, um, but Wisconsin. Uh, and yeah, so I have invested a lot of time and energy into that soap opera in particular during my college years. I've watched a fair amount myself of also Young and Restless. Yes, it's great. Danielle, I agree. It, what a wide ranging career. I did not expect uh, Anthony's story to be that. But also, like, I was really impressed with the transition from school into those internships, building his career there, doing all of this work on the side in the theater world, the professional world, and then recognizing that, like, I need to make a shift. I need to make a change. And then using those skills that he had attained and built over all of those different experiences to then move into something with a little bit more stability. But I was thinking like the budgeting and the booking and all of those things that we've talked about before, like he really built all of those skills over the course of that time and now can use it to, with a, a three person crew for his current institution um, to really make that place work. So just thinking about the trajectory and the the transferable skills. Uh, it was really impressive to me. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about how you don't always know whenever you start out in your career necessarily where you're going and getting all those skills is super important. So I think you just really highlighted that. Yeah. And in this aspect, I mean, I think he's the first person that we've interviewed that I would actually like to see a timeline on because <laughs> um, that linear trajectory is like, uh, well, and then at the end throwing in, oh yeah, I graduated early. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, like stand up comedy, uh, writer, writer on a soap, um, you know, becoming the assistant. I mean, writing a, an off Broadway show. It's like, I mean, a really impressive amount of things in honestly a relatively short time span. It's not relatively short. It is short. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we are impressed and just uh, fanboying growled out there. <laughs> yes. So he said something that I wanted to touch on when he started talking about his speaking engagements, where he's talking yes. about bullying. And he he goes into a little bit. And, and Brian, you asked a, a wonderful question in there. And, and his response was that, you know, I don't know that we ever really do get over that or get past that trauma. It's just we learn to deal with it better. Um, and and just him touching on on that existing trauma and lingering trauma from youth and the effects that it has on him today to where he still avoids conflict and 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 has those residual things really touches on how important those developmental years are for all of us. And the continued importance we need to be placing on mental health and caring for each other as a part of this industry and recognizing that we are all carrying something, um, whether it be from the past more recently and keeping that in mind as we are working on becoming a more balanced um, and holistic industry and thinking about people's needs and not just the work. When I was talking about the staff levels being reduced and asked the question about what is it going to return? Do they have a plan for that? And and Anthony explained perfectly like how we're all doing the job of many right now and we're doing a good job because we're sacrificing so much. It kind of makes the decision maker say, oh, well, maybe I can save money and not have to hire somebody back in that role. And how do we get past that? How do we how do we not sacrifice so much without, you know, hurting somebody in the process. I think a, one important key to that is is honesty with superiors, honesty with the decision makers in, yes, I'm making this work right now, but I'm not going to stay here much longer in this 
in this situation whenever so much is being put upon me because I cannot mentally and emotionally handle this. Yeah, I think it honestly, like what I think what's what people were starting to do. I mean, when we someone coined that term silent quitting, which is terrible, um, but like really just like people starting to set up boundaries for that reason of going, yeah, there was a period of time where we took a lot on our shoulders and we added a lot on, onto our plates so that we could make sure to get through this. But at some point, like we got to get back to, you know, at least attempting to have a work-life balance or at least attempting to have a life outside of work. Um, and for a lot of organizations that, that will take time um, because as Anthony said, I mean, the decision makers are going, well, we're doing, we've been doing fine without these folks. Um, but it's going to take, honestly, people setting up those boundaries. A lot of times, you know, people have that small talk. Hey, Brian, how you doing? And I'll be like, oh, great. No, that's, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. I, I'm overworked and overstressed and not able to keep up with everything and feel like I'm underwater all the time. So, you know, I, I need to make sure I'm being truthful to the people, especially the people that make the decisions mm -hmm. so they know how hard it is. Because when you make something look easy too, and you're always positive in front of them, they don't realize that there's a problem too. And you're certainly not alone in that, Brian. And I think that's really a, a wise point. And what other tools are out there for us to maybe utilize? Like, are we, are, do we need to be doing time studies and having people really report on what they're spending their time on, how long it takes, um, doing, you know, comparisons to what we did before versus what we're doing now, levels of programming evaluations. Is the programming as good? Maybe not because we don't have the people power to make it the quality we had before. So really taking a deep dive into those elements um, is something that our organizations across the industry should be doing. And at some point, too, do we need to look at what the structure of some of these boards are? So many boards are volunteer boards and they're, you know, managing the budget, making sure the organization's afloat, which is necessary. But do we expand that board? And whenever you join it, do you take on an arm of a position that's missing? That's not going to, that's going to be a hard conversation and certainly isn't going to work for everybody. But when your staff is spread too thin, I mean, you, you have to look at the other people that are connected or like you said, Josh, I mean, the leverage that you have as somebody who is one of three people running an organization is, is your time and your place there. And that's unfortunately sometimes your only leverage. When did you record this one? Just because I feel like timing is important for talking about return to return to operations and things like that. So I should probably mention that Anthony and I sat down right after OAPN uh, in September. So some of the information might be a little bit dated um, that was brought up, but I still think all of the points he made were, were important to bring forward. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to circle back around to the advice that he was kind of giving to the future. And I like I said at the top of this, I'm so impressed by him and I have all the respect in the world for him and desperately want to go and have a drink at some point. But the part about um, just really grinding, especially in the beginning and taking all these unpaid internships and working 10 hour days and really giving so much of yourself and that you have to love it um, and you have to live it if you really want it. For me personally, I think that's a narrative that we have to get away from, especially when we're talking about the trauma that everyone's holding and the years that we've been through and the fact that the work that we're doing is labor and is skilled and not everybody can do it, right? Boards can't walk onto the street and hire another ED with the level of experience that so many people have and bring to the table that we have to be treating work-life balance as an essential part of that. And that has to start at the beginning, because when else do you have time to go and explore stand-up and explore writing your own show and explore doing all of these other things that make this industry so incredible? And also, how do we make sure that we're living what we're all saying now is trying to hire people from underserved populations and from people that may not always have those resources? I also think that we are starting to see that shift um, because we are starting to hear more conversations about um, paid internships and sort of that becoming, well, I would say it seems like it's becoming the norm. I guess I don't know if that is actually the case. I know that a lot of the organizations that we are working with um, are, are focusing on paid internships because 
it is labor. I mean, it is, if, if, if they're not doing it, somebody else has to do it. Um, and they should be compensated for that. Um, instead of just saying, well, you got college credit for it. So congratulations. Um, you also paid for that college credit too. <laughs> so, but yeah, so I, I do think we are seeing the shift, but that is, that is a really good point that, um, that yes, you should, and that you should love what you do and you sort of have to love what you do to really be successful at it. But, you know, shouldn't come at a cost. The other the other aspect of that is it, in the artist role, you're grinding and building something up for yourself. Whereas in, say, an admin uh, internship, you're, you're grinding and, and lifting up an organization, not yourself. That's a very good yeah. distinction, So those are, Josh, those are yeah. two different... Yeah. Those are two different paths. Whenever you're benefiting yourself, you can treat that however you'd like. Whenever you're benefiting an organization, the organization needs to have the respect for the time that you are putting in for them. And because that is labor towards a large organization that has resources. That's a great point. That's a great way to frame that. That is a very good distinction. I like that a lot. And I think if if you are doing your thing and it becomes an organization, not to forget that the people working under you to treat them well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I guess what's always in the back of my head is that I just don't want to glamorize that. Right. Cause like he built something incredible out of it. What we're talking about though is a paradigm shift, right. And not the not glamorizing it, not making it the expectation, you know, that is going to take time and more conversations and more people really thinking about it deeply and having hard conversations within their organizations and things like that. So like, this is not a quick solution. This is not something that's going to happen tomorrow. Um, but the more that we talk about it, the more that leadership really steps up and uh, helps break that narrative that like you have to work 16 hour days in order for us to be successful. Uh, the more that we put some of those things into practice, you know, the more successful that will be, but it's, it's a huge paradigm shift. So I don't think any of us have any illusions that we can make that happen tomorrow. No. And to be honest, I'm working multiple 16 hour days right now myself. And the more I do that, the less successful I feel. Like I feel successful when I get to clock out after seven hours or whatever. So I want to thank Anthony for sitting down with me. I, I always enjoy speaking with him. As you heard, he, he has such a multifaceted life and so many wonderful stories. And there's a lot more that you, you didn't even hear. We only scratched the surface. So uh, I look forward to the next time I get to sit down with him with, for a drink and a story. And we hope you all got something out of this. And we invite you to join us again next week. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus I-ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. And I'm joined with my friends. Kevin, what's going on in the Quad Cities? Oh, you didn't. I didn't know you were going to say that. <laughs> I was just so ready to say my name. Sorry to have such a challenging <laughs> question. Sorry. Uh, confusion. Uh, yeah. Oh, I got it. I got, oh, got the bug. Oh. I got the bug. I smushed him on my laptop. That's our first death. <laughs> yeah. Let's have a moment first of silence. casualty of the podcast. First on air death. <laughs> Wait, but there's a second one, you guys. I didn't see the second one. So this week, uh, I sit down with uh, Tony Wilk. Tony? Oh, my God. Where did that come from? <laughs> hey, Tony, because of the Italian, probably. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Tony. Uh, Anthony. <laughs> Just please talk like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs>